2: Hello, welcome to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my times radio show. Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. It's the end of our week, at least. On a Thursday, our panellists are Robert Crampton and Esther Webber. They'll be here in a minute talking about everything from how do you get more women into politics to uh, what chair they're currently sitting on while working from home. Plus, it's 30 years ago this week that Margaret Thatcher was ousted as Prime Minister. I've been speaking to Michael Heseltine, John Whittingdale, uh, and others who were in number 10 with her at the time, and two journalists who covered the story at the time. So, all that coming up. First, our panelists, Esther Webber and Robert Crampton. This is the morning after the night before. Are you still, is it sort of the boxing day of, of Wish You Sunak's big spending review? <laughs> Uh, Robert, your, your, your thoughts on uh, the Chancellor's latest efforts to uh, um, yeah, come up with a plan which might last more than five minutes
0: I thought he did okay. I thought he had to do something he said the 300 year uh, worst recession in 300 years uh, highest debts for 60 years I think he had to do something he didn't I mean and I suppose the headline thing is, is the free the public sector freeze and the uh, and the overseas aid. Uh, cut. Uh, beyond that, he uh, seems to spend uh, or committed to spend fairly freely. I thought he did okay.
2: And, and what about Esther? This this issue of uh, the controversies buried in the buried in it. There's this issue of the uh, four billion pound cut to foreign aid, while at the same time finding four billion pounds for a levelling up fund. Uh, you've been digging around in what exactly this levelling up fund might be.
3: Yes, um, I mean, it didn't take long for people to spot at the time that those were sort of very similar amounts. Um, and there are some people who've been speaking to me who aren't just kind of random but they are people who are involved with this area of policy who say that this is the first they've heard of it and no kind of scoping work has been carried out, and the government said that's um, that's perfectly fine, they're going to decide in the new year how exactly it's going to work. Um, But I think some experts in the area are a bit concerned, there's no talk of actually how this money's going to be handed out, and sort of ignoring the work that's already been done on which areas might be the most needy. How are you with
2: your maths, Robert? Um, we were just Not bad. <laughs> because um, it 's really difficult I, I like think work out
0: that four billion in one direction is the same as four billion exactly
2: yeah. but in the in the grand scheme of things at a time when well, the national debt is over two trillion, uh, the Ooh. chancellor's talking about um, having to borrow uh, was it two hundred and fifty billion. Uh, uh, with you know billions more expected for next year, he's already spent mm. two hundred eighty billion, with another fifty five billion 55, for next yeah. year. Then you're down to what's four I mean, I know we shouldn't, but four billion does feel a little bit like small change in the grand scheme of things. This feels more about politics than than uh, than it's economics. Po- yeah,
0: it's politics and it's emotion because uh, because it's affecting the world's poorest people, and uh, you've got five uh, ex prime ministers saying we shouldn't have done it. Uh, I mean, one of the criticisms of the foreign aid, I mean, it it does still leave us as the second biggest uh, donor worldwide, I think. So that's that's his that's his kind of uh, that's his comfort, his his, his security blanket. So we're still pretty generous. I mean, one of the criticisms is that it's wasted uh, or some of it's wasted. And some of it goes to China and uh, places that we didn't really ought to be uh, funding. Uh, I guess the similar problem. It's often it's difficult for government to spend money, especially in a hurry. And one of the one of the problems with the four billion for the levelling up fund will be the same. I mean, in that it is an an invitation to for kind of local pork barrel politics and uh, potential white elephants all over the north. Uh, You need to plan quite carefully how you. Spend as much as four billion quid, although, like you say, it's a drop in the ocean compared to all the borrowing. And I suspect we'll be seeing over the next few uh, months and years uh, scandals about waste uh, with this with this money.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly given the the government's track record uh, this summer on uh, contracts and public spending and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, uh, the enthusiasm for getting out. I remember. Was it during the election campaign last year? I think the Institute of Fiscal Studies looked at uh, Jeremy Corbyn's spending plans and basically said the problem wasn't the amount he was promising to spend; it was just that, that literally the government machine couldn't get that sort of money out of the door at the speed, of the, um, quickly uh, enough. The, the, yeah, uh, and I think
0: that's that, that's similar uh, uh, accusations been levelled at the foreign aid uh, foreign aid spending, it's just shovelling money out of the door on things which uh, you know, like celebrity chefs, cookware ranges, uh, if they're sourced in uh indonesia then they get they get government m- uh, money and that's obviously wrong but it's a, that's that's a problem with public finance generally is 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 uh it's easy to commit to spend the money it's actually quite hard to, to to spend it wisely
2: esther um what should we be looking out for do you think um as matt hancock announces these new uh coronavirus tiers and which areas are going to which uh, into which areas there's been a lot of lobbying behind the scenes hasn't there from tory mps Uh, unsurprisingly you know trying to get themselves into tier one or or at least tier two uh so that you know their pubs can stay open and their constituents don't get cross
3: uh yes there's a lot of kind of let's be very careful with the virus but not in my area um and um yeah no one wants to be on the the toughest r- restrictions. And I think the argument is going to be particularly sensitive in Greater Manchester. I think that's one everyone will be watching um, because it's been widely reported they're expected to stay in tier three, the toughest restrictions. And they've been there for a while. And there are many Tory MPs within. That area, who argue their particular patch isn't that bad, and so the government is going to come under pressure, which I think they've already tried to le- alleviate kind of preemptively A, by publishing some analysis of why they're doing it, and B, by saying uh, on the 16th of December. There will be a chance to kind of take a step back and look at how it's working. Um, so that's the kind of two, uh, bones, I guess they're throwing <laughs> to. The unhappy MPs today.
2: Yeah, this. this yeah, the offer of uh, of reviewing after two weeks. It's not forever, even if you're in the one you don't like now. <laughs> and um, uh, Robert, have you been glued to the government website where you can put your postcode in and see which? um I mean, I'm very excited. Well, I, I was excited when uh, about the fact that where I live in um, Hampshire, we've gone down to about 72 cases per hundred thousand. Oh, this. But then the, I read in the papers today that it's only going to be remote parts of Cornwall and Cumbria, that which are, which are going to uh, stick in tier one. Have you been following it closely? How uh, I? I have.
0: And we're also also one or two places in, uh, far, uh, in eastern England, which, uh, given that I'm from Hull uh, and then going back up there for Christmas, uh, I only missed out narrowly. I think they're on the far Lincolnshire coast. Uh, so we nearly benefited from that, but not quite. But we'll wait and see what um, happens with that when Matt Hancock is up at, uh,
2: at 11.30. Um, Boris Johnson, uh, uh, over the weekend, while he was still in his isolation, Esther, appears to have committed the Conservatives to equal gender representation at Westminster. It, was this a deliberate thing, or was this a whoops-a-daisy yeah, you, <laughs> you, you,
3: you never quite know, do you, if, if it's something he sort of accidentally made a binding commitment on. But, um, do you remember when he was in front of the Jason Committee, which is kind of the super group of committee chairs. and <laughs> um, they were asked uh, one of them, Caroline Notes, the Equalities Committee Chairman, chairwoman, chairwoman asked him why uh, there weren't more women in his cabinet and he got rather uncomfortable. So I wonder if it's been sort of playing on his mind since then. But yes, he put out this message saying um, the next big hurdle for Parliament (coughs) to cross is to achieve half and half representation in Parliament. And I think obviously we'll have some people who will quickly respond to that, well, your own cabinet would be a good place to start. It was
2: interesting. We had um, Baroness Jenkin, Anne Jenkin, who set up Women to Win with Theresa May 15 years ago. She was on the show uh, earlier in the week, and she was saying exactly the same thing. She was very excited about what Boris Johnson had said. Um, and then when I pressed on, well, exactly how do you plan to do this? Because uh, the Conservatives have always been opposed to all women shortlists when they're picking well, candidates yeah. in seats. Um, and seats, uh, and she didn't want to commit to that, and it didn't appear that Boris Johnson was committed to it. So, um, it does sit, feel Robert like a bit one of those things? It would be nice if there were more women around, but we're not going to actually do anything. Um, well, we just...
0: quite, and the Conservative Party has really always lagged behind on this. I was just seeing some stats that at the last election, thirty percent, only thirty percent of Tory candidates were women. whereas fifty? That was fifty-three percent of Labour candidates. Uh, so you could. Uh, you know never mind uh i mean it's a very ambitious target 50 50 in parliament you could start with his uh getting up to 50 50 with his own candidates and that uh the the history showed in the labor party that meant all women shortless and they don't want to do that so yeah that was a nice thought uh well done Kerry, but <laughs> uh, but but you know uh it, the proof's in the pudding
2: well, yeah, exactly right, exactly right, and yeah, you need to actually make it. I was, it was quite struck that so Anne Jenkin was. Um, I sort of tried to press her on: if you put forward, if you've got a, a seat, a safe Tory seat where an MP is standing down or whatever, and uh, you're drawing up a shortlist, if you keep putting forward a mixture of men and women, and the local associations keep picking men, then Ooh. isn't there a problem with the local parties that they, you know, they think well that a man in a suit is what an MP looks like, and that, that's still sort of the culture a bit. <laughs>
3: Yeah, definitely. It sort of goes all the way down to the grassroots and maybe that's something people focus on less than actually the jobs at the top and need to look at the reasons why there are less women coming forward. And perhaps actually, you know, what's happened recently with coronavirus and the different ways of working in parliament kind of points to a different way forward on that uh, even though we know that's being resisted as a long-term change it's hard to see how you fully put the genie back in the bottle after that
2: well but there's a sort of slight issue with this isn't it is that people think well people rightly say well you know if if the if the population's 50 50 then maybe the people making the decision should be but then whenever a particularly conservative politician tries to do something about it, you get, oh, it's PC gone mad, people should be there on merit.
4: Uh,
0: yes, I mean, that is a problem. And you don't necessarily want a situation where identity politics takes over entirely and you have to have precise representation of every uh, uh, different kind of identity in terms of uh, gender or race or disability or class or education or whatever. But... Uh, it seems to me that as the, it's obvious to me that the that the government would benefit from the presence of uh, more women uh that all the, I mean you just look at the way women leaders have been succeeding around the world during this crisis and uh therefore some element of positive discrimination has to occur it doesn't to, it has to it doesn't have to last forever but uh you need a you need a, a, a kick start in this in this area, and the Tory, I think the Tories should do it at, at a local level. I mean, there's not many women in the cabinet, but I suspect that the number of women in the cabinet probably accurately reflects the number of Tory female MPs. Uh, so you, you've got to, you just got to get more candidates, and then more, more MPs, and then you'll get more, more women at the top.
2: Yeah, somebody's just texting, not put the uh, name on it, but saying the, the associations pick men, but where we've, cho- where we've had open primaries, women have been chosen, and that's when yeah. anyone in the in the constituency can vote. And Obviously, Sarah Wollaston was one of them, although it didn't go terribly well, which ended up leaving the Tory party altogether. But that, anyway, that's <laughs> yeah. a separate point. Finally, Robert, I want to talk to you about Chair Envy. Um, uh, oh, yeah. This revelation, the government has spent £10 million on helping uh, officials work from home, uh, it, on the one hand, you, you wrote in the Times this week that you thought that was probably quite a good value for money, kitting out, you know, lots of civil servants. Say, with, yeah,
0: it didn't sound it, very much to me. To but then,
2: little... uh, inevitably, the green-eyed monster loomed.
0: Yeah, well, it was a one particular chair that got me, uh, although I'm very happy with my own chair, in which I'm sitting at, at the moment. Uh there was a there's somebody I think it was at the Cabinet Office some unnamed uh, pen pusher as I think I put it because you always have to call them pen pushers <laughs> when you're being rude about it. <laughs> so, was uh, was uh, I got a four four hundred and forty nine quid chair by some designer whose name escapes me? Helen, Herman, uh, Herman Miller Herman, sale. Herman, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I was a bit cross about that, uh, given my own setup here, which we were if we were on if we were on the telly you would uh, you would see is fairly humble. Uh, I think maybe I need an... Yeah, I think I wrote that I needed an upgrade, especially because I'm here all the time, never exactly. mind whether in
2: lockdown or otherwise. Exactly, you work from home anyway. How how, how are things going? Esther, what's your current uh, status? Is it kitchen table in the bath? Where, where the, what's your current working from home arrangement? Uh,
3: the the chair situation here is completely ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> we uh, I I live with a flatmate and um, we've both been using the dining room kind of living room to work in two of the dining chairs now had to sort of be consigned to the wall as our two office chairs have been moved to the table so the living room is basically 90 percent chairs <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was robert crampton esther webber there up next 30 years since margaret thatcher's down. You'll listen to Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Sholley. Now then, a Conservative Prime Minister brought down by a row over Europe. It's a cliché now, but 30 years ago this week, that cliché was born when Margaret Thatcher was ousted as Prime Minister. Now, I don't want to give away the ending of the current series of The Crown, but it doesn't end well for her. So I've been speaking to some of those who witnessed the events firsthand, including Michael Heseltine, who wielded the sword but did not get to wear the crown, and John Whittingdale, the former political adviser to the Prime Minister, who watched her fall from grace inside Downing Street. So while the events of November 1990 seemed to happen quite quickly, in fact, the seeds of her downfall had been sown in the months and years before.
5: I joined Margaret Thatcher at the beginning of 1988, (laughs) and it was sort of downhill
2: from there on. That was John Whittingdale, who's now a government minister. But 30 years ago, he was Margaret Thatcher's political secretary. Unlike today, back then, there were very few political advisers, spads or spin doctors in number 10. So he was her political eyes and ears. She had won three elections.
5: She was hugely successful. But the problems grew from that time on. I hope it wasn't due to my arrival, but the the one, of course, which caused us most difficulty was the community charge, or poll tax, as it was labelled, which was obviously unpopular and and was a source of of complaint and, and opposition throughout the time I was there. And then there was also a difficult relationship between her and her senior ministers.
2: In fact, several had resigned in the preceding years. In 1986, Michael Heseltine had resigned over the Westland affair. In 1989, Nigel Lawson quit as Chancellor, claiming that the Prime Minister's economics adviser, Alan Watkins, was undermining him. In the same year, there'd been an unsuccessful leadership challenge launched by a backbencher called Anthony Mayer. And then, on November the 1st, 1990, Geoffrey Howe resigned as Deputy Prime Minister, protesting about Margaret Thatcher's hostility towards the European project.
4: How on earth are the Chancellor and the Governor of the Bank of England mending the hard as they strive to do, to be taken as serious participants in the debate against that kind of background noise. Mr. Speaker, <laughs> Mr. Speaker, I believe that both the Chancellor and the Governor are cricketing enthusiasts, so I hope there's no monopoly of cricketing metaphors. It's rather like sending your opening batsmen to the crease, only for them to find, the moment the first balls are bowled, that their bats have been broken before the game, by the team captain.
2: (laughs) Michael Heseltine was sitting in the Commons nearby.
4: To be honest, I understood clearly what he was saying, but in retrospect, I think I misunderstood it. Uh, You remember the words he used were... The time has come for others to consider their own response to the tragic conflict of loyalties with which I have myself wrestled for perhaps too long. And I was sitting quite close to him in the Commons, and uh, I thought, when he said it's now up to others, he was actually thinking about me. Some many years later, in talking to people who were very close to Geoffrey at the time, I was persuaded that he was not referring to me at all. He was referring to the Cabinet.
2: Even so, as the anniversary of the failed Mayor Challenge loomed, Michael Hesseltine launched his own.
4: At that time, uh, the unpopularity of the government and the uh, impracticability of the poll tax were absolutely at the forefront of the political agenda and the pressure on me to stand was very substantial from backbenchers. I mean, people were just constantly coming up to me Uh, Eventually, uh, a number of people asked me if they could put my name forward, and the best is history.
2: Even at this stage, Margaret Thatcher thought she was safe in her position. John Whittingdale again.
5: I certainly don't think she thought that she was going to lose a vote of the Parliamentary Party. And Geoffrey Howe's resignation was the sort of pivotal moment, even though relations between her and Geoffrey Howe hadn't been great ever since she moved him from being Foreign Secretary to Leader of the House of Commons. You know, when he came to resign and he made that very famous speech in the Chamber of the House of Commons about the broken cricket bat and she sat on the front bench listening to him and she knew from that moment that this was very serious and the Geoffrey Howe speech was almost an invitation to Michael Heseltine to pose a challenge which of course he did.
2: Michael Heseltine took that invitation not necessarily expecting to emerge victorious.
4: I didn't think I would win but I knew that the Conservatives had to change the leader and change the poll tax if they were to have a chance of winning uh, any subsequent general election. Uh, So, I mean, you can never completely dissociate your own personal interests in these matters, but by and large, I I was convinced we had to change the leader. What was in my mind? Well, a certain um, hesitancy, because I realized that it would be divisive but in the end, the pressures were clear. And um, I mean, what people were saying, uh, and some of these were her natural allies in the party, look, have you got the balls for it? I mean, are you going to run away? Everybody knows that the situation is untenable. And you're seen and have been for years now as a, a figure who could potentially lead the party. Uh, we, we want to know whether
2: you're up for it. It turned out he was up for it. But Margaret Thatcher remained confident in her position, in part because the intelligence her campaign was getting was duff. Too many Conservative MPs were thought to be in the bag, ahead of the first ballot, when in fact they weren't properly on side.
5: I'm afraid that the, the campaign amongst MPs was, was, was very much a, a failure to grasp The depth of concern there was. Those who were saying to the DMO, yes, of course, of course, we'll support Margaret Thatcher. They were sort of written down as, as supporters without any further checks. You know, we now know, and I mean, I've been involved in leadership campaigns. Uh, amongst the parliamentary party and and now, of course, you know you don't just accept that you you check and check and check, you constantly collect information, and you know unless you've heard from five different sources that somebody is publicly committed, you don't assume they are
2: in the first ballot, Margaret Thatcher won fifty five per cent of the votes of Tory MPs Michael Heseltine got forty one per cent a clear majority for the prime minister, but not the fifteen per cent margin required under the party rules. So she returned from a trip to Paris and called in her cabinet, one by one, rather than together, when they might have felt embarrassed in supporting her publicly. Instead, they trotted into number 10 individually and told her that her time was up. John Whittingdale again.
5: I mean, I think part of the problem was that she had very strong support, particularly on the backbenches and in the junior ranks of the government. But among the cabinet, there were quite a lot of people who were never that strong sympathise. Uh, sympathisers with her, um, and therefore, you know, they essentially told her that they, most of them, sort of said it with tone of deep regret, and then said, you know, well, uh, if you insist on standing again, well, you know, of course, I will support, but they made it clear that they they didn't think she should do so, and one or two s- actually told her to her face that they wouldn't support her. Ken Clark, um, famously, did do that.
2: So far from going on and on, the game for the Iron Lady was up. After more than a decade as Prime Minister, she took this betrayal badly. I have to say she was angry.
5: I mean, she was obviously upset, but but she was angry. She felt that she had won three elections. The, the last one uh, in 1987, she'd won by a substantial majority. She sort of felt that, you know, the... the, the for her to be removed it should be done by the british people in the general election not by a group of conservative mps and she she resented that and she also felt that it was bad for britain in that she had a leading role at that time there were some very big challenges it was around the time of the first gulf war and and i think she felt that that it was almost unpatriotic to remove her at that time but she was very you know she was very surprised because she had been told that she would win in the first ballot and she was shocked and and therefore then I think felt to some extent betrayed.
2: For Michael Heseltine any sense of celebration that he succeeded in removing the Prime Minister he opposed was tempered by his realisation that his role in her downfall meant that he would not replace her.
4: I knew that was the end of my chances Uh, I was quite clear about that that uh, if uh, I might well have beaten her on the second round but once the uh, campaign was opened up, then I would be seen as the assassin, someone who was seen as so divisive a figure in the party. I think they were quite wrong. Of course, I would think that, but um, <laughs> that was a very strong feeling at the time.
2: Meanwhile, Labour had called a vote of no confidence in the government. John Whittingdale stayed up until two o'clock in the morning, working on the Prime Minister's common speech.
5: I think everybody in the room knew that she had decided that she wouldn't continue as prime minister, but it it wasn't said. Um, so we kept, we concentrated on the speech, but every now and again, people came to see her to try and persuade her to stay on. And I, I was, you know, they were political people. So that was part of my job. So I would say, you know, so-and-so has arrived with people like Michael Portillo, Michael Brown, Michael Forsyth, um, her strong supporters in the Parliamentary Party, and even actually Frank Field, who was a Labour MP, but was a a, a friend and somebody who admired her, um, came. Uh, and she did see quite a number of those people. Uh, but it was a surreal evening because we were working on a speech for her to defend her record and her premiership when actually everybody knew in that room that she decided that she would resign.
2: Having made a decision to resign, Margaret Thatcher convened her cabinet to tell them in person. Caroline Slowcock was a young civil servant and the Prime Minister's private secretary. She was in the room.
6: You know, I I was the only other woman in the Cabinet Room when this was happening, and I went in expecting just to see a bit of drama, a bit of history. I'm a civil servant, you know, so the next Prime Minister you know, will be coming in shortly. I wasn't expecting to get emotional. Uh, But then, you know, the sight of all those men who the night before had told her that they would support her, but they didn't think she could win... They were all around the table, and there was just her, and she had this short statement that she dictated earlier, and she could not read it out. She kept on breaking down in tears. You know, her voice, which is normally you know pretty sort of steady, just could not be kept under control. Somebody offered to read it out for her, but she said no. And obviously, she was just determined to finish. You know, she wasn't. I've started. I'm going to finish. So she got to the end finally, and then you know, she said, "I don't think any of you will have heard that, um, so I'll read it again." And then she went through the whole extraordinarily painful process and i started and i wasn't the only one in the room i started crying you know i just found it so uh affecting and there was david waddington he was wiping tears with a big white handkerchief it it was the most painful uh moment of my of my working life i I don't think anyone wanted to be in that room at that point
2: so off the prime minister went to the house of commons for one last hurrah
7: i'm enjoying this i'm enjoying this (laughs)
2: Caroline Slowcock
6: again. She collected herself and um, she went to go to see the Queen. And when she came back, the the door of Number Ten closed. You know, the sanctuary, because there were you know outside there was media everywhere, and she literally collapsed crying and. You know, we had to send her personal secretary, her diary secretary, Amanda, who'd known her for years. She sort of ran down the long corridor to the foyer, just picked her up, put her arms round her and took her up to the flat. In a way, that's what number 10 is like. You're seeing scenes that nobody else sees. An hour or so later, she went out and she gave the performance of her life, really, in the House of Commons. Quite a woman. You know, whatever you think about her politics, you've got to say that you know she, she had real courage.
2: Soon after Margaret Thatcher's downfall, the Tory party rules were changed. Instead of just getting one proposer and a seconder to mount a leadership challenge, now 10% of Conservative MPs must sign a letter calling for a vote of no confidence, which is what happened to Theresa May two years ago. John Whittingdale.
5: I think that the scars that were left by that particular leadership election Took years and years to heal. And you know, there was a lot of people were still very angry for many years afterwards about the, the way in which Margaret Thatcher had been treated and removed. And, and there are many who still regard her as one of the greatest leaders the Conservative Party has had and one of the greatest prime ministers. And that it was was very unfair and, and a huge mistake to remove her as they did.
2: In the subsequent contest, Michael Heseltine was up against John Major and Douglas Hurd. And, of course, John Major won. He was right when he said, he who wills the knife never wears the crown. It's become a political truism, a warning echoing down the years to other ambitious leadership rivals.
4: I thought I was quoting Shakespeare. Um, Again, years later, someone said, where did you get that quotation? I said, oh, I think it's Shakespeare, isn't it? And actually, they came back to me and said, there's no quotation attributed to anybody except you. So I... I think that maybe it was me originally, and it certainly, it was, it, I used it first in an interview in either The Spectator or The New Statesman, I forget which, um, with a well-known journalist at the time. So perhaps it was me.
2: And does it still hold true today?
4: People often not say to me, well, it's new, isn't it? And I say, don't believe a word of that. Nothing is new in politics. Read Shakespeare. And I suspect he got it
2: all from the Greeks. <laughs> that was Michael housel talked talking to me there about how there's nothing new in uh, politics. We were just talking about uh, Margaret Thatcher's downfall 30 years ago this week, speaking to some of the politicians and officials who watched it happen from the inside. But what was it like to report on that? Delighted to be joined now by Philip Webster, former political editor of The Times. Good morning, Phil. Morning. And Julia Langdon, who was political editor of The Sunday Telegraph at the time. Morning, Julia. Hello, morning. Uh, nice to have you both with us. So, um, Phil, first of all, what was it like during that time uh, watching um, uh, this story unfold? And I'm interested to know, these days, the whole thing would be played out on social media. We'd have cabinet ministers tweeting that the prime minister must go. Uh, the prime minister would tweet that she was going and, you know, you wouldn't have to leave the house. But how do you go about getting a handle on, on a story like that as it unfolds?
1: Well, it was a year-long story, really. Uh, a, precisely a year before, a, a little-known backbencher called Anthony Mayer had launched uh, what seemed like a ridiculous challenge um, against Margaret Thatcher. At that time, she seemed it seemed impossible that she could be removed. But somehow or other, 60-odd MPs either backed him or abstained. And from then on, it was a year-long story. And it became more and more obvious that she was... Coming to the point where she was going to be seriously challenged, what none of us had had foreseen was the fact that uh, Geoffrey Howe would launch that killer speech in the House of Commons. But on the day itself, it was the most dramatic day I remember in my career when she failed to get that majority in the first vote. As we know, she had to get a not only to win, but she had to win by a 15 percent majority of the total party. And that was a high hurdle. And we all had the figures. We knew she had to get 208 votes to get through. She got 204. It was that close. But when those... The committee corridor outside committee room 14 where the result was announced was like a football crowd. It was absolutely (laughs) packed with everybody who worked in the House of Commons wanted to be there for that moment. And when the... MPs inside that meeting were told, the, the collective gasp inside and outside was was so audible. And uh, as I say, certainly the most dramatic moment of my career, because at that moment we knew she was finished, and that had seemed impossible a couple of years before.
2: I mean, that's the thing, isn't it, Julia? Having been uh, Prime Minister for more than 10 years, uh, had uh, won three general elections, it, it, you know What seemed like a, you know, the Iron Lady going on and on and on, suddenly that came to an abrupt halt.
7: Well, uh, Phil is quite right. It wasn't sudden. It, w- it, was, it had been coming. And in fact, the person who spotted first that something should, should um, be done, and preferably by Margaret Thatcher herself, was her husband Dennis. What he said and had been saying for some time, running up to 1989, which was her tenth anniversary, was you ought to call it a day, dear. um, After ten years, mm. and the phrase he used um, was, "Otherwise, they'll cut you off at the, your stocking tops," which is a very Dennis Thatcher <laughs> phrase. Um, I'm not sure you and, get away
2: with that these days.
7: But, sorry, I don't no, know, you I don't never know you dare say anything like that. that. But Dennis was—that's exactly what Dennis was like, and. After her last election win, um, she entered what became known as her Gloriana phase. Um, And she thought she was, um, nobody could, nobody could better her. And she didn't listen to advice. She embarked upon the poll tax, which was a disaster, as we, as we knew then and now, and now see in retrospect very clearly. And she didn't, she didn't listen to advice i I was very taken um when writing the obituary of Tristan Garroll Jones, uh a former deputy chief whip at the time, of the role he played that night. And it it was very crucial, and he he knew that the game was up. After after that vote that Phil has described in the committee on uh, the committee corridor scene, shall we ever forget it? Um at least Five cabinet ministers and about a dozen ministers in all went to Tristan Garrel joness house in what became known as the Catherine Place Conspiracy. His yes. house was in Catherine <laughs> Place. And um, after, after that meeting, um, Tristan said, the game's up. And they, they, they were to tell her subsequently, as you know. I feel like you mentioned things were
2: very close in the end and and politics being a sort of people business and, uh, you know, how how politicians get on with their colleagues is so important. And there was this criticism that she'd become a bit aloof and a bit detached. And if she'd done a bit more to win over some groups, then, then she might have survived.
1: Yes, that's that. That was obviously the case at the time. We, that, she happened to be in Paris on the day. Well, who organised that? You know, <laughs> they should have organised the contest when she was actually in the country. She could have done some arm twisting, but she also never went out of her way uh, to make friends with people she she thought were on the other wet wing of the party, and that was just to do her down. And when I was writing uh, my book a couple of years ago, I. I went back on this whole thing uh, to find out if there was stuff that I hadn't learned at the time. And I found that there's this strange group called the Conservative Rugby Group. They were all ex-rugby players. They were in the all-party rugby group. But then after those meetings, they'd go off and discuss politics. And I found that they all voted. They tended to vote the same way on internal party matters. And I discovered that several of them Although telling their constituencies that they were going to vote for Margaret Thatcher because she was still so very, very popular in the constituencies, actually failed to do so. And there were enough of them to have turned the vote in her favor if only... She had taken a bit of trouble to show a little bit of interest. Dennis was interested in rugby, but um, she thought it was an alien an alien thing. She never took any interest in the uh, in the in sporting activities in the house of Commons. and it 's quite strange that a slight like that was enough to turn this group against her
2: it 's those small things in in political life isn 't it uh, just finally julia um... Uh, I spoke to Michael Heseltine and, and, you know, the old uh, he who wields the knife doesn't get to wear the crown. Uh, That still seems to hold true in politics these days too.
7: Uh, Yes, I think it
2: does. I was very
7: interested to hear Michael Heseltine say that he thought he'd he had produced that phrase himself. I'm sure I'm sure there is a history of that phrase. But um yes, it, it remains the case today, and um we shall see what happens in that in uh, <laughs> the future.
2: In the future, yeah. All all political leaders uh, be warned. Uh, there's always someone who, who All seek- political
7: careers end and in failure, as we know.
2: Well, we've come to the end of this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Listen to my Times Radio show every Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. Uh, you can listen on DAB radio, on your smart speaker. Get the Times Radio app. You can also listen to the Red Box Podcast of the Times Radio app as well. And if you want to read about the stories that we've been talking about, then you need a Times subscription to get that. Go to times.radio forward slash subscribe.